Hi everyone, this is Sam. Before we start, this is a reminder about my book, Sort Your Head Out, Mental Health Without All the Bollocks, which is now a bestseller on Amazon. Thanks to everyone who's bought it and given it such wonderful reviews so far. If you haven't bought it yet, then head over to Amazon where it's available in hardback, Kindle edition and audiobook version narrated by me. You can also buy signed and dedicated copies via my website, samdelaney.co.uk or from my local bookshop, barnesbookshop.co.uk. If you call or email them, they'll sort it out. Anyway, on with this week's episode. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the record producer, musician and businessman, Sir Robin Miller. Robin is one of the most successful and prolific figures in music of the past 50 years. In the 80s, he made his name producing seminal records for the likes of Sade, Everything But The Girl, Working Week, Fine Young Cannibals and numerous others. His knack for blending soul, jazz and pop earned him the nicknames Golden Ears and also the original Smooth Operator. Alongside his work in the studio and his tireless charity endeavours, Robin is also a hugely successful businessman and the current chairman of iconic record label Chrysalis. He's been blind for most of his life and has contended with all of the mental and physical challenges that entails. Since 2020, he's been the chair of Scope, the national charity representing 14 million UK disabled people. His big focus is the need for more diversity in regards to disability in the workplace and the boardroom. Now, this is a slightly longer than usual episode because Robin really goes deeply for the first time into his childhood, his career, his blindness and how it's all shaped his mental health along the way. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. Robin Miller, welcome to The Reset. Thank you very much, Sam. I'm very, very pleased to have the chance to chat with you. I'm very, very pleased that you've made the time to come on to the podcast, (laughs) Robin. What an amazing career you've had. So much I'd like, I mean, I could easily waste the the whole conversation with just asking you about all the tremendous, beautiful records that you've been responsible for over the years. I will try to resist that. Um, (laughs) Although, you know, we probably will get into that a little bit. But uh, listen, I'm really uh, interested today to talk to you. I've interviewed you before about you know, the, the the challenges of having a disability, being blind and, and working at the level you have done in the music industry. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm really interested to sort of look a bit more deeply into the sort of the mental health aspect of that and, uh, and you know, how you dealt with that right from an early mm. age, because you weren't uh, born without eyesight, were you? No, but I never had the same eyesight as other people. The first thing I noticed was other people talking about stars in the sky. And I was actually fascinated um, by books, encyclopedias with pictures of the night sky, because I could see perfectly well looking at a picture book. But then I looked out of the window and there was just blackness. I was also aware of the fact that other people could negotiate around at nighttime Mm. and that I couldn't. And so I think the the I think you're too young to experience sorrow in a sort of comparative mental health way, but I think it's already was starting to affect me quite badly. And the best way I can um, explain that, Sam, is that you know you often read of of children who've been in 
very uncomfortable upbringing circumstances, creating a fantasy world, a fantasy world where they're safe, a fantasy world where maybe they're not being abused, or a fantasy world where they... I started to create fantasy worlds um, where I was a sort of superhero. And my favorite superhero was a guy called Green Lantern. And he had a, a big, a magic green ring and he could fly anywhere, go anywhere. And I got an old ring from uh, a, my mum's, I think I nicked it, you know. And then I remember sort of fibbing and saying I I didn't know how to go on. Anyway, I had this ring and I secreted it in my bedroom. And I'd shut myself in my bedroom and all my friends were my little toy animals. And I put the ring on and then I had superpowers. And the, and the, it wasn't about strength or anything at that point. It was about uh, being able to see, being able to sort of, you know, to fly around. My parents were sort of aware of this but you know something um i became aware of their i'm going to call it grief at having a child that was losing his eyesight and my dad and mum reacted in very different ways but um i was very much the sort of victim um, and I don't like the word victim, Sam, and I particularly don't like the word, you know, victim sort of bandied about. But mm. um, my mum was West Indian and her thing, her shtick was um, voodoo, um, tea leaves, um, faith healing, all the rest of it. Mm. So from the age of about eight or nine, she started taking me to Madame So-and-so in Hampstead and Mystic So-and-so, and then a guy in some big swanky house out in the countryside who was a, of Asian extraction, and he would lay his hands on my eyelids and stuff. And, of course, the, the effect of this, Sam, was people kept telling me, you're going to be cured, you're going to be all right. You know, I'm laying mm -hmm. my hands or I've gone into a trance or some person in the next door has uh, uh, who's dead is actually talking to you and um well when you're a kid you you believe it so mm. uh a series of inadvertent i suppose i could say about my mum you know um uh, she was the blinded one really and you know blinded by grief and despair and, and hope and and i think remember that for, coming from a west indian culture this wasn't um Ballyhoo, you know what I mean? I mean, she really did believe this mm. stuff. I never got to the point, I mean, uh, the way my things ended with my mum were very strange, I mean, years and years later, but I never got to the point of actually sitting down with her and asking her. My dad's reaction was, um, and I did talk to him about this years and years uh, later, was to toughen me up. So he got me a bicycle he encouraged me to ride a bicycle he encouraged me to play competitive sports including ball games i could never see well enough i could i had tunnel vision sam which like looking through a couple of loo rolls mm. um so anything coming from the side or above or below 
I couldn't see it. So I became quite a good table tennis player, but then people quickly realized all they had to do was to lob, you know, make the ball go up first, and then it, yeah. it, it had gone, which is fine if a tennis table tennis ball hits you in the face. It's not such fun when a cricket ball hits you in the face. Um, he also made me join the boxing club. Right. And he made me... Um, I. Uh, I'd like to think I won a single fight, but I don't think I did, and I probably had 70 or 80 fights. Wow. So one, one, well, once again, people got very... I'll, t- I'll tell you one positive about all that. Obviously, ev- even though people soon saw that um, if they if the punch came from anywhere other than straight in front of me, I couldn't see it coming. Years later, I uh, when he was dying, my dad, and I said, by the way, I just want to ask you, why did you make me join the boxing club? And he said, well, it was part of my... My my dad was Irish, ex-army, uh, rugby player, boxer, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he said, I knew you were going to get hurt as you went through life. And I wanted you to toughen you up and get you used to getting hurt. And it's like, thanks, Dad. <clears throat> um, however, and I, you know, it's like, don't try this at home, isn't it, Sam? Mm. However, it... it, it it did make me tough. I mean, it definitely did make me used to being hurt. So I carried on doing things. Um, I rode a bike until I <laughs> actually I actually rode into a stationary red Routemaster bus. And I sort of figured, well, if I didn't see that, um, things aren't going well. <laughs> School, merciless bullying. Right. Uh, Mr. Magoo. Uh, pe- people would put their, as I was w- walking past, they'd stick their foot out because they knew I couldn't see it below me. So I'd, you know, wow. fall down the stairs. Absolutely ceaseless. Um, no sympathy from the school. No protection from the school. No understanding from the school. And of course, because I was boxing and because. Because disability, yeah, it makes you a bit grumpy, but it, it doesn't half make you resilient, you know, tough. Mm. And and two two things happened that made people start leaving me alone. First of all, I learned that the trick was to run at them and grab them. Because once I'd grabbed <laughs> hold of them, A, they couldn't sort of dance around me, you know, I couldn't lose sight yeah. of them. And 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 I could sort of work at close quarters, and I think I'm a very old school friend said to me a few years back we were we were talking about this, and he said he said I think people got got to the point where they thought it wasn't worth it, Robin, because they <laughs> knew that if they picked on you or taunted you, you'd fly at them, you know, and you'd grab them by anywhere, <laughs> and even though they could probably fight you off, because I was only a skinny little kid, yeah. it just wasn't worth it. The pick, pick an easier. Pray, but yeah. the other thing. But the other thing was, um, I learned to play the guitar pretty well. That was my in my bedroom at home with my little stuffed animal friends. I worked and I worked, and back to the fantasies. Um, 
it's maybe people listening to this will understand okay i'm a i was a deeply unhappy child with a naturally buoyant happy optimistic temperament mm. odd odd really yeah um, odd um but like a cork if you like you know i would always try and pop up and my dad bought me a guitar for a fiver and with it came a picture it was a discarded guitar from a lad who'd had a couple of pop hits in the 50s and he had peroxide blonde hair and there was a picture of him in his kind of 50s um what you you know the kind of teddy boy mm. suit holding this guitar well to robin so i had a i had a mirror in my room and i just posed i you know quiffed my hair up like this guy i you know put on a jacket and pretended it was like his posed with this guitar and i thought i'm that this so that was he took over from green lantern as being the person yeah. that i i in, in my mind i i was going to be and i practiced and i practiced and i practiced and i um took the guitar to a folk evening at school and honestly sam probably just blew them away you know completely mm. blew them away i'd learned these old mississippi delta dot watson finger picking style very very flash sounding you know what i mean yeah. i probably blew blew them away and gradually um i think people started thinking um he's pretty cool um i started growing my hair long and i got into trouble for growing my hair long and i heard i knew that my mum had gone in and talked to the headmaster and um she did tell me later that that she'd gone in there and and said something to the effect of look it, it's tough enough being robin here at a mainstream school um I was supposed to go to a independent school but they didn't have enough money to send me so I went I you know I went to the local comprehensive um and she apparently said it's very important that you let him be himself and so I was the only kid in school with fairly long hair mm. um, and we're talking about the 60s here so and I think that and the guitar playing made me sort of even cooler so things got better but uh it, it's interesting i i i had a chat with a woman who's doing a phd into um disability mm. and she said the 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 period that people talk about most is their teenage and what they talk about is that they can't do the things that the other kids do and boy 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 because remember i couldn't see in the dark yeah so so and i couldn't get the other boys at school get to 16 you get a lambretta you get a motor scooter and you get a parker yeah. couldn't do that i could sit on the back of someone else's scooter but i couldn't ride it uh if i went to a disco i couldn't see 
anything. I, I could see the lights, you know, flashing, but I couldn't see the people. I couldn't couldn't find my way around. Sorry. Hang on. Sorry. That's my computer talking. There we are. Proof positive that I need a talking computer. Um, <laughs> uh, so I couldn't, you know, chat up girls. Um, I, 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 I fantasized. I, I mean, it's interesting talking to you because I don't, I don't have these conversations, you know, Sam. Um, so I then fantasized about being oh, a racing driver and blah, blah, blah. And I, I, I fantasized and, and I got to the point with a school friend of nicking a car um, and, <laughs> and driving it around the streets of uh, uh, in um, Hertfordshire, getting nicked and called off down the police station. I mean, we must have been 14. Mm. Um, and my mum and dad, in, in them there are days, they mm. called your mum and dad and said, "Yeah, come and get this little squirt and tell him not to do it again, which is exactly what happened. Um, so, yeah, teenage and not being able to do those things um really really i i i did i did get a girlfriend a very nice girlfriend i still know her and i sort of latched on to her and that lasted well right through college until i was about 21 22 and um i was i was sort of finding my feet mentally i'd i'd I, I realized I was pretty resilient and pretty strong. And then I asked her to marry me. And um, we sat down and she said, um, well, my dad is against us getting married. And I said, well, why is that? Well, he doesn't think I should marry someone who's going to go blind. Wow. So... And I can remember this like it was yesterday because I've repeated it to myself. I've I've written the incident down. And I said, and? And she said, well, obviously, I, I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted. I don't know what to do now. <laughs> I said, mm. well, if you're conflicted, um, I'm not. Goodbye. Mm. Uh, uh, terribly. I mean, what a... What a what a what a moment that was! That, what a I moment. mean that yeah that sounds that's a traumatic moment and you know that what? sounds extremely painful. I did, and I took extreme. I didn't. I didn't just say goodbye. I put put my guitar in a suitcase, packed a rucksack, got on a ferry to France, and didn't come back for four and a half years. Wow. Can I just um, ask you, go, going back um, at yeah. this point to something you said earlier about how you were deeply unhappy but naturally very optimistic. Yeah. Um, that's a really interesting combination of characteristics, isn't it? Yeah. It's not yeah. one that I'm I'm familiar with. Is it, I, I mean, hmm. is, it, is it one that you think is common amongst people with disabilities like yours? Is it one that you've encountered before? No, no. And and I honestly think, uh, I mean, it's very, this is a really interesting conversation, Sam, to be honest with you, because I've never come at the whole thing from this angle. There is no doubt that other people look at me as exceptional. No, mm. there's no doubt about that. Mm. And there's no doubt that 
people with disabilities who read what I say, meet me or hear me talk, regard me as mm, inspirational and their parents regard me as inspirational. But it's always in the context of we have never met a person like you before. Mm. So uh, I think it's, it, it is a fact. What is common with disability is determination. Um, yeah. when, I, when I, just fast forwarding a little bit, I, I spent nine years as a panel, just a lay panel member of the Human Genetics Council, which was looking into and how to deal with and how to, legislation should deal with genetic disabilities. There were usually about 100 people in the room, 30 people with some sort of disability and 70 mums, dads, sisters and brothers. Mm. And it it became very clear to me that if there was one way of, of, of distinguishing between what they call family experience of disability and lived experience of disability, it's that most of the grief is experienced by the family. Right. That when you've got a disability, this is just this is my assessment from from meeting people. When you fall, you fall a long, long way, and you fall quite abruptly. Um, and ninety nine times out of a hundred, you pick yourself up and get on with it. That's what you do. So you become very resilient. Your parents and siblings who are not disabled, every time they look at you, put your hand out in front of you to you know, find your way or, or, or mm. roll a wheelchair across the room or whatever it might be, whatever it might be, they, they die a thousand deaths. That mm. it, it, it's a 24-7, 360 yeah. grief. And I... I, I I have to say that, in my opinion, this is a tough thing to say, that, that 70% of the difference between a success and less success in the life of a person with their disability will depend upon their parents and their brothers and their sisters. What, and how they cope with those feelings yeah. and express yeah. them to you. Yeah, yeah. You, you've then got to, of course, put the dynamic of the person with the disability, what their what their personality type is. If they're naturally perhaps less confident or more timid, they'll be more affected. So mm. if, if their parents are clearly consumed with grief and want to coddle and protect their child, um, a, a lot of children will succumb and, and then they won't get the... You know, to get so, up. so do you feel like we go back to the stuff you said about your dad? You do you feel that, that he played a big role with his approach to, yes. to you? Yeah, that yes. sort of toughening yeah. up regime, uh, hugely, hugely. Mm. But uh, I, 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 and I really don't know how I feel about it now, Sam. You know, in, in a way, it's sort of if I ever mention that to other people, the general reaction is, "Whoa, oh, blimey, that's a bit extreme, isn't it?" Um. So I can't sit here and recommend it as a, you know. But I mean, the boxing thing is almost like, I mean, 
that is pretty startling, you know, that your dad's response yeah. to, you know, you having an issue with your eyesight is to chuck you in a boxing ring. But, uh, you know, here it's you the are. the single thing I mentioned most. Okay? Yeah. So if, if that tells you something, it's the thing I mention most, if anyone asks me about growing up, you know, and childhood. But, um, you know, get it. Getting back to um, mental health, mm. you can't have a conversation about mental health with a disabled person without mentioning or thinking about the mental health of their parents and their siblings. Right. Because because there's absolutely no doubt that, that in, in the vast majority of cases, their lives are affected and actually... The person with the disability is often the one in the family who's trying to make light of it and just say, listen, it is what it is. I just want mm. to get on with it. I mm. don't want you sobbing every time you see me. I don't want you coming with me to every meeting at every school or college. Mm. I don't want you ringing up the person if I've gone for a job, you know, interview saying, you know, saying, now look here, this is my boy. He's this, that and the other. I don't want it. I just mm. actually really don't want it. I want to be left alone. And um, uh, it comes out in all sorts of different ways. But in that nine years of meeting dozens and dozens and dozens of, of, of families, um, I, I, I became acutely aware. Well, two things, actually. Firstly, I wasn't with a family member, you know, so I was perfectly okay about just strolling in on my own. And by that time, uh, things were different. By that time, I'd taken a very big step. We haven't got time to get into this, Sam, but um, th the question of hidden disability or invisible disability, dys dyslexia, dyspraxia, mm. um, uh, uh, ulcerative colitis, um, hard of hearing, poor vision but not blind, mm. Um where uh, where you've got a choice of whether you tell people and who you tell and what happens. This is the biggest, biggest, biggest thing to do with um, health, health. Because if you don't, and eight out of 10 people with a hidden disability choose not to tell their employer or their work colleagues. I was one of those eight out of 10. I was the person that took a job at a record company, which was adding up numbers. And I did not tell them that I had anything wrong with my vision. And, you know, you'd sit and ask yourself, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Wouldn't it be easier? if you? And all I can say is, well, it may, it may seem the obvious thing to do, but I was ashamed of having a disability. I was deeply, deeply ashamed. It was, in my mind, it was deeply uncool. I just wanted to be a sexy young guy, mm. you know, getting girls and, um, uh, well, and riding a motorbike and doing all those things. And having a disability, this was deeply uncool. So I said nothing. I, mm. I, I tried, to, I, all I tried to do was to get all the secretaries, you know, to, to go to bed with me to mm. sort of prove, I mean, to a, to a ludicrous degree, I mean. Mm. Um, but, and then of course the mistakes started creeping in 
and the, the, the bosses would haul me in and say, you're not really doing a very good job. You're not really paying attention. You would think that was the moment, wouldn't you? Where you go, yeah. well, actually, let me let me be straight with you. But no, no, no. And in the end, I did what I always used to do when I was young, was I lied. I lied. I fantasized and I lied. Mm. And I told them that my an aunt had left me some money and that I was going to um, pursue my career in music because I didn't need to work anymore. What a load of twa- twaddle. Mm. Anyway, so they accepted it and, you know, and off I went. Um, so uh, really, w- without, without laboring the point, when I then went to France, and I was I was playing guitar on, on, in the metro on the, on the tube to make money. As I said to you, I'm not blowing my own trumpet. I mean, this is simply anyone who practices the guitar as much as I did would have mm. got good at it. Sam, you know, mm. your mm. dog would be good at it. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, there was an American sax player on the same platform, same underground, and he stopped and he said. We've got a session at a studio. The guitarist hasn't showed up. You, you're good. Why, why don't you come along? And when I went to the studio, um, I was really interested in the whole recording side, the equipment, and the and being France, you all have dinner together afterwards. The owner of the studio, fantastic guy, said, "You seem very interested in the in in the studio side." I said, "Yeah, I am. I I, I love it. I actually applied." to a whole load of studios in London, but I didn't even get an interview. Um, and he said, well, you could, you could, you could train here. We, you could do an apprenticeship with us here. Mm. And this was the moment, Sam. This was the moment. This was the moment, okay? I was 22. I, so I couldn't really see well enough to read. I... I in as well as the tunnel vision, which was getting smaller, mm. I was developing uh, macular degeneration, so a big crease in the middle. So the bit that had been quite clear was now mm. had got a smudge in the middle. So whatever the situation, whether it was him, whether it was anyway. So I said, um, you know what? I, I'm not sure I could do that because uh, my eyesight isn't very good. And I might trip over the microphone, so I don't think I'd be able to necessarily see the. And he just went, "Oh, that's all right. We can, we can, we can work around that. That won't be a problem." Mm. So, if anyone's listening to this podcast, if you want to change, if you want to change somebody's life, there's two things you have to do. I would describe that circumstance and that meal after that session as a safe space. Yeah. It was a safe. I'm getting emotional talking to you now. Um, it was a safe space. It was something I really, really wanted, and I suppose because I had nothing to lose. You know, I, it wasn't like I was in a job. Mm. It wasn't like I knew anyone else in the room, and so I, I, you might say, I sort of blurted it out. But I made that choice to talk about my disability. And that one, he just, when he, he just waved, he just waved his hand and just said, 
I don't see that as a problem. We can we can work around that. Um, and he then, not flippantly, he then just said, is your hearing okay? I said, my hearing's 100%. He said, well, this is a music studio. This is about music. You'll be fine. Hmm. And, um, you know, I, I was there for three years and uh, absolutely thrived. And I suppose because, because I didn't have the kind of comparative knowledge that I've got now about how so many people don't tell their employers and, and how it is the employer needs to work to create safe spaces. Actually, mm. you know what, Sam? Employers need to create safe spaces so that everyone can just, you know, be themselves and be relaxed, whatever it is. And and because we're all different, you know, we all need, I mean, a great company with great people in it has got all sorts of people and they're all different colors and they're different ages and they're different genders and they're different sexual orientation. And some of them are disabled and some of them aren't. And some of them look after people who are disabled and some of them don't. And what that makes is a company that really is in touch with its audience, its stakeholders, its customer base. That's why they make better decisions. That's why mm -hmm. they make more money, Sam. They do. I know this is a hobby horse, and I know you know it's a hobby horse. You've got a line under it saying, get him off this thing about, you know, uh, uh, about inclusion. But honestly... No, no, this is fascinating to me, honestly, and I think it's honestly, important. Honestly, 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 if any any employer actually thinks that it's not a good idea or a cool idea to have people with disabilities. Um, just think. They used to think that about women, mm. right? What Long before, I don't mean just the, the usual one about, well, there's no point in employing a woman between 20 or 40. Um, they'll just get married, you know, mm. and have babies. And then what will we do? And that took the law to actually force them to change their behavior and provide maternity leave and maternity cover so your job was guaranteed. Guess what? The companies didn't all go bust, you know? Yeah. Um, how amazing is that? Uh, so uh, I'm trying to sort of find my way through this, this maze on two fronts. I'm, I'm working with Scope. The, the disability charity that I'm temporarily the chair of. I'm working with Scope to work on creating, I'm going to call them tools. I don't like that word, but, but, but creating a sort of a kit with which an employer who wants to be inclusive, but finds the whole thing pretty scary, um, to, to, to say, look, this is how you go about it. This is this is this is how you talk to the the existing workforce about that is your intention, and you get them to buy into your intention as a shared vision and shared values. And believe me, unless you're very unlucky, they will. And they'll yeah. think better of you and they'll think better of your company. You will then be able to say to them, by the way, there are some brilliant people who can come out and talk to us about what it's like having a disabled colleague and how to be yourself with them 
and so that you don't feel awkward, that they don't feel awkward, and this is how you go about it. And then next you go along and say, and this is how you advertise, and this is what you say in the advert, and this is where you advertise. I don't mean you don't have to lay it on with a trowel, Sam. It, yeah. It's kind of what you don't say, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, and then uh, this is the tricky one. And, and I, I was speaking with a a, a, a a friend of mine sits on a board with me, a gay friend who's um, the vice chancellor of a big university. And we were talking about how helpful it is. If you're a woman going for a job and, and the four panelists are men, at the interview, you're going to, you know, if you're a person of colour and you go for an interview and there's four white people sitting on the counter, you're coming. And, and the reverse is true. If 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 you go in, you see two women, one Asian, one African gent, you know, right? Mm. You're going to go, this is the place for me. And you're going yeah. to give a great interview and you're really going to show them, you know, you can do the stuff. Same would be true of a disability, except you've almost you're, you're almost then trying to say we need someone with a with a disability that is obvious to sit on a panel because the chances are the person who's come for the interview if they've got a hidden disability hasn't mentioned it on their mm. application so mm. we don't know and they don't know but if they see me um They'll go, well, well, blimey, I mean, he's on the interviewing panel and he can't see. So this yeah. is why I've shoved myself into there's a there's a series of panels that that uh, sit when senior civil servants are applying for jobs. And I've right. pushed my way onto that board some of the times for, for that very reason. I got some great advice from uh, Neil, uh, who uh, was chief executive of Leonard Cheshire. When I got the job at Scope the chair at Scope, I went to see him. It's always good good to go and talk to people who know more than you do. Um, and he said, I'll tell you what, Robin, he said, you and I have both spent decades with our white sticks tucked in our back pockets and our sunglasses put away in our, in our jacket. He said, let me tell you, you, he said, if you're representing Black Lives Matter, Robin, it doesn't matter what a great guy you are. If you're white, you are not the right person to lead that job because the black lives that matter that you're representing, when they see a picture of you knocking on the door of the Ministry of Social Services and you're white, they'll go, um, why is he representing us? So he said, you are now a disabled person. You, Your glasses go on and your cane comes out of your pocket every time you're meeting, talking, to show that you are effective, that you're a, you are a representative, and that you're an effective person with a disability. And he was so right. Mm. So, you know, I've, I've, I've done that. But so from my point of view, I'm working on the employment side. But where I haven't really made any progress inside myself or externally is whether it is the right thing for me to say to people with hidden disabilities you you know what you'd be a lot better off if you said something because actually i'm not 100 percent convinced that that's true yet in our society in mm. britain yet 
in the 1980s, when I came back to the UK with everything that I'd learned from the studios and a little bit of money that I'd made from producing successful records early on in my career, as soon as I started producing, I, I was just good at it. I was just good at it. Mm. Um, I tried to raise, I had a bit of money. I tried to raise some more money. I went to an accountant that I met. I couldn't raise money to 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 set up the studio, and he he said to me, "Well, one of the biggest three I, one of the biggest national um, private equity companies, rang him just after I'd left the meeting, and they said, "You didn't tell us he was blind. My God, we couldn't, we can't lend, we can't put money into a company led by a blind person." And they actually said this. They said they'll be taking money out of the till, and he won't see even see it happening. Wow! Yeah. Wow. Um, and then a bit like Pierre at the studio in France, the thirty-sixth person that I went to see uh, said, "Sounds like a great idea." Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll get the papers. We'll just do it. So you you know you want you want people to. Um, ignore it, know it's for real, but look beyond it. Yeah, look, look, look beyond it. I see, and I don't know really that we're there yet. I can only do what I can do in a few years to create. Look, if I, if if we create, let's say, ten big employers and I, small and medium employers, that's a whole other issue. But if we get ten big national employers to feel that they're more confident in uh, recruiting people with disabilities and that the people that they recruit have got the confidence to say, yeah, I do have a disability. Yeah, I'd love to come and work for you. Yeah, I'm going to be good. And that they start to realise that their businesses are thriving and that their less other staff are leaving. And this, this weird stuff, Sam, less other staff take time off for sick leave when they've got disabled colleagues. So the idea, oh God, we take him on. Oh, if it's if 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 she's got Crohn's disease, every time she has a bout, she's going to take a week off. Um it's wrong in two counts, really. first of all, if we if we spin right back to what we were talking about about me as a young man, the one thing I have really and this is a this is a mental strength is I said that when we fall, we fall a long way. Mm. Um, and actually, I feel strongly that we should be encouraged to fall a long way. It's unnatural otherwise, because, because being disabled is rubbish. It's mm. a rubbish hand of cards <laughs> to be mm. dealt with. Um, and you, you, I think, and I'm not a mental health expert. I think that you, you, you need that safe space actually to go down and wallow in self pity, because mm. because what. What happens with disability is this determination, this resilience, this, I'm going to call it a carapace, this hard, 
shell. Of course, it's it's partly a hard shell, which is nature protecting you against harm, because you are vulnerable to harm. And so uh, I think anyone who's actually dealt with people with disabilities for a long time might say they can be grumpy, can't they? Mm. Um, which is a bit like saying women colleagues, you know, they can be emotional, can't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's you go, and? And yeah. it's not directed at you. Yeah. Um, you, you, if if you are confident and you're, you're you're you've got a colleague who's disabled, or you've got a colleague who's a woman, or you've mm. got a colleague who's gay, or um, uh, transgender, which is a massive thing to be going through. Surely you need to be tolerant, don't you? You need to be, you know. Uh, uh, after all, are you telling me you're never going to come in like a bear with a sore head? Yeah. Don't you want them to be nice to you when it happens? You can you can understand why, um, because for them the journeys, it, it, this is really interesting. The stress points travel, Sam. Journeys. Mm. I I cannot think of a of a disability that doesn't make travel more stressful. If you can't read numbers, I rest my case. If you can't read signs, I rest my case. If you're hard of hearing and can't hear uh, announcements, I rest my case. If you're in a wheelchair, <laughs> I rest my case. If yeah. you're blind, you know what I mean? I mean, uh, uh, if you suffer from anxiety, I rest my case. Travel is hard. And so the chances are that if you know someone who's traveling maybe 40 minutes or 50 minutes and they've got a disability, whatever it is, just they're going to be a bit frazzled by the time they get through the door. But they're resilient and they're determined and um, it won't, it shouldn't last long unless you just behave like a twat, you know, towards them. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, so this resilience and this determination is probably why when you do let them go to a college or a university, you know they get on average they get a whole grade higher than their mm. than, than the whole peer group. They'll get a, if the averages are two two, you know they'll get two ones. Um, they will perform incredibly well. I mean, you um, haven't said this, but you did. You went to you talked about going to comprehensive school, but you did go subsequently to Cambridge, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And yeah, um, I, I did. and you did well there. So that's something that you haven't mentioned. But in spite, again, another sort of inspirational thing for people listening is, is in spite, quite aside from all your achievements in your career and in business, you know, despite your experiences at school, which sound pretty painful and brutal, mm, you know, you, you you nevertheless you you ended up thriving academically as as well as you know creatively and and professionally and, and whatnot. And again, that that I guess is a sign of the resilience that you just l learn and, and becomes part of you, as you've explained, as someone who has to live with a disability. But when you say you need to wallow in it, I think that's really interesting to me because in recovery, I'm a recovering addict, they talk about honouring the feelings. And for me, that is like such a powerful thing 
It's like what you have been through, you need to understand and acknowledge to yourself. And I think a lot of us, whatever our pain has been in life, is we learn to just keep driving forward and not stop to reflect because you're worried that the moment you stop to reflect, it might knock you down. And so you have to keep going, keep going, keep going. And But really, that will just build up a lot of stress, anxiety and pain inside of you that never quite gets addressed. And especially with someone who, who clearly had a huge amount of drive and resilience and determination, as you've explained, sounds to me like that moment in France with Pierre was a big pivotal moment in your life because it was the first time that someone sort of made you feel like it was okay for you to, you know, be open about about what you had about the fact that you had been hindered by disability and that it wasn't going to, you know, be an issue for him. And so, did that help you? Just like rather than keep trying to ignore it and drive forward, stop, reflect and acknowledge that you'd been through a lot of pain in your life. I'm very interested uh, in listening to what you said. Um, I There is a similarity uh, between um, pushing on past through addiction and pushing on past and through disability, I feel like I, I was in a deep, dark well, and I've, by force of will, been pushing myself up into the daylight. And my disability is tugging at my feet. Mm. trying to pull me back down. And I've got as far as the fact of both my elbows are now on the green grass at the edge of the well, you know, and and the top half of me is above ground, but that the disability is still just nagging. And so it's... it's, it must affect my daily, and it is daily, and even sometimes hourly, determination to keep my body out of the well and above ground. But and I'm doing really well. I reckon I'm now actually on the, I think I'm out of the well and I'm on my knees, and I'm looking up, and I'm almost trying to stand, but the very back of my trainers, my toes, is Mm. still just over the lip, Mm. and I can't relax. Um, And I think that my safety net is to know... If I lose my concentration or focus or I get upset by something and I slither back and there is my disability waiting to pull me back into the abyss, that it's normal, it's not weird, it's not my weakness, and that I've done it before to pull myself out and I can do it again. 
that's and, a great message to anyone really who's struggling, isn't it? I don't know whether it is. Well, I, I think that, you know, when I talk to people and I'm no expert, I'm not a, a therapist, but you know, sometimes I, I often I find myself talking to people who, who are in dark places and sometimes the best thing you can say is you've been here before. Yeah. You've got through this before. Yeah. So have some faith in yourself because the most destructive thing is to lose all faith in yourself. I think that's, and that, that yeah. is sort of what depression often looks like, isn't it? Yeah. Something that is interesting. And um, so in the course of a week, I will, unda- I will hurt myself physically uh, mm. w- without any doubt, sometimes a lot. And, um, <laughs> Shelley now knows she can she can sort of tell by probably the the choice of expletives and maybe the, <laughs> the tone in my voice or mm. what happens after whether she needs to whether it would be nice of her to sort of come along and see what's going on you know mm. um so if it's just a simple f blank 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 mm. she'll just sort of wait you know, and if she hears nothing, she'll sort of wander over to my part of the house. To see, you know what I mean? So yeah. see if I've knocked myself out or, you know. Um, and she said, she says, the more swear words she hears, the less she worries. She just smiles, right? Yeah. So if it's an absolute string of expletives, um, you know, it's a bit like, you know, they always say to the um, the paramedics, Sam, you know, when mm. they attend uh, horrific disasters, they say, um, you know, OK, take take courage, sort of go in there, um, ignore the ones that are screaming, go to the ones that are quiet, because the mm. ones that are quiet are in the deepest shock and probably the most badly hurt. If someone's screaming their head off, they'll probably live, you know. Mm. Um, so so deal with them last. So if Shelley sort of hears me just going, <laughs> F blind, um, she'll sort of think, well, I don't know what he's just bumped into or, you know, dropped on his foot or something, but, you know, he sounds all right. Yeah. Um, so a little bit of that is, is um, rather than, as I say, every now and then I think, you do you do fall a long way, but but a little bit of that. Um, I mean, look, I don't know what you're re- recovering from, and I don't want to. But I would I would guess that let's say it was cocaine or alcohol or you know whatever it might be. Mm. Um, if it, you've got to go into a pub eventually, you've got to go into yeah. a club eventually. It will be there four feet away, and and. I, I, you know, maybe they're not alike at all, but maybe it works on the same part of your mental health and your mental strength. At some point, you've got to look at that glass or you've got to look at that liner powder and go, nope, you know what I mean? Nope, nope, nope. But it'll be a bad minute yeah. or two. Or, or, and then occasionally, actually, you'll think, oh, I dealt with that really well. <laughs> mm. Or occasionally you'll think, I've got to go home. I can't, I can't actually... Ca- I can't carry on. I was going to meet Dave in the pub. You know, I'm actually, I just, I just want to, I just want to effing go home. I just want to mm. effing go home. I just want to bloody get away from this bloody pub, this bloody club, this, you know, I just want to go home. And I think that's all right. I think 
it's a bit weird if you aren't human in that way. Mm. And and you sort of you, I mean, you, you know, poets and writers for centuries have said, you know, you get scars. You you go through life. You get scars. You got. It's not all or nothing. It's not all or nothing. And mm. um, you do get. You you do deal with things better by repetition. You become, you don't become braver, Sam, but you do become more fearless. And I think that's like jumping out of an airplane with a parachute. You know, I I I mean, doing it for the first time, I reckon, requires a huge amount of bravery. Doing it for the hundred and first time, you are fearless by that time. So maybe my dad had had it right, you know, because I don't know how many boxing bouts I had over six years, but it would have been, you know, 70 or 80. And, yeah, by by the 70th or 80th time I was coming out into the ring and I knew I was going to get bashed in the face, you know, bashed in the stomach and things, um, it didn't bother me. It, it didn't bother me in advance, I mean. It didn't, mm. you know, it didn't make me frightened. I, I knew it was coming. And um, so, yeah, there's a, um, uh, you do get, uh, I mean, people talk about, like you mentioned recovering addiction as though, do you know what, uh, you know, recovering addiction is, is a term that feels a bit like disabled. It's a sort of weak kind of a, it's a sort of weak phrase, but actually you've got to admire recovering addicts. You've got to require disabled people because it's tough and they are tough. They mm. are the strong ones. They are the really, really tough ones and, and that are facing this all the time. And boy, you want them on your team. Believe me, you want them on your team because they have proved that they are tough enough and strong enough and strong-willed enough to um, every day, you know, just deal with it. In their case, it's, I don't know, you know, not having a, a glass of wine. In my case, it's, uh, yes, you know, hitting my head on the bathroom, you know, mirror and just kind of going, yeah. yeah. Um, and then sort of on we go. And then, I mean, often, by the way, I get to places. <laughs> I get to places, Sam, and people say, oh, my God. And I say, what's the matter? There's blood streaming down your face. You know, <laughs> and I'll go, oh, yes, yes. Oh, that was King's Cross. <laughs> that was King's Cross. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, so, so, uh, yes, great. Okay. Um, I mean, that does happen, honestly, from, from time to time. You really mm. do get to. And, I mean, Look, so if if you think about it, if we're sitting here talking about it, Sam, and we've got a plot, you know, we're plotting, right? We're, we're okay. It's the um, it, this is this is like Ocean's Eleven, right, or Ocean's Thirteen, right, or, or Mission Impossible. We sit down, you and I sit down, and we go, okay, we'll have the blind guy. Uh, we'll have the oh. Oh, the Indian wheelchair-using woman. She'll be great. Mm. Uh, the single parent, uh, the the recovering alcoholic. Uh, who else have we got here? 
the gay woman, sports woman. Yeah, she'll be great. Uh, you know, you start thinking about it like that, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> and you kind of go, Mission Impossible. Good, you know, watch out. Right here we <laughs> here we come. Not not Dave, who was always captain of the school cricket team. Yeah. And, you know, nothing ever bad happened to him, or you know. Yeah. Um, teacher's pet Lucy, so and so, pretty, tall, leggy, you know, blonde, blue eyed. Uh, they're not going to be. They're not going to be any use to us, Sam. Not in a tight no. spot. They're not. 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 No. No use at all. We. We want the real. We want the real hard. I, you know. I not. I don't just think people who have had slightly tougher or bumpier or messier experience in life are likely to be more uh, resilient and tough. Like you say, that's right. Also, to be honest. And that's really the spirit of this podcast. They're more interesting too, because you know, uh, well, a, a, a bump-free life is not necessarily one anyone's ever going to write a book about or make a movie about. Well, so, you know, I, I like on this podcast meeting people who have got tales to tell, and people who've got tales to tell have usually had a lot of challenges. Do you and, think um, they're going to be? I mean, because I do. I, I think they're all they're they're going to be empathetic as well. Mm. Oh, know? absolutely, yeah. So, so let's say you've got someone, any of these categories that we've been, you know, putting out for our Mission Impossible team. You've you've got them on a, maybe they're on a helpline, you know, mm. and nothing to do with them. I don't mean you know, a wheelchair user's helpline, just a helpline, right? A, a, a sort of frustrated lady who, who's. Electricity is still on the blink, sort of thing. Mm. And she sort of says, um, oh, "Well, I mean, it's it's been awful because I can't do this, and I can't cut the grass, and I can't, you know, and 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 the, the doorbell doesn't ring." So, you know, do you think one of us is going to sit there and say, "You think you've got troubles, lady? <laughs> let me <laughs> let me tell you what I've been going through." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it does it doesn't work like that, mm. right? You're just going to naturally kind of go. Wow. Yeah. Because if you've got any empathy in you, empathy is about empathy is so many people don't understand it. it. Empathy is about it's not about not judging. It's actually about judging people by their situation and their standards, not yours. That's what it is. Totally. It's about taking yourself out of the middle of the picture completely. Mm. And looking at that is the best way I have for dealing with my mental frailties and my um, occasional, as I called it, self-pitying navel gazing Mm. is to take yourself out of the. That's how we do it. We look out. That's the only way you can do it. There is no other way. You have to raise your eyes from your navel and you have to slowly get to your feet and you have to look out. And and if there are people out there, it's better for you because you can then get involved and engaged with them because you need to be engaged in some, somebody's life and if it's not your own, you can't just then have a sort of blank nothingness. Mm. I mean, you, you can get obsessed with donkeys or animals or something that I think a lot of people will or do. But if you get engaged with other people's lives and you're, you're empathetic, in other words, you're 
You're just thinking, what's it like being her? What's it like being him? Am I really listening to what they're going through? Is there something I can actually do to improve the situation, you know, for them? Then you don't leave it behind, but you do become uh, a, a fabulously useful uh, person. Just, just on the um, you know the teenage thing, which I was talking about, I get more. I get a lot of mail. I get a lot of mail through my website. Usually, mm. people have maybe heard me do something like this, Sam. Although I've never done any quite like this before. Um, and it'll often be the mum, and it'll often be my son slash daughter. Not always, by the way, losing their eyesight. They may have a different disability. More now, of mm. course, since I'm involved in scopes, mm. wider canvas. Um, we didn't know what to do. He's listened to you. And he's, it's given him a new optimism. And I love that. I mean, I absolutely love it because um, the point I've got to in my life, you can't say you're happy unless you're a fathead. I have got to the point where I am fulfilled. I have a rich life. I've been successful. I've been effective. So I am a role model. Um, I'm delighted, actually, to be a role model. I'm actually delighted. I'm. I'm. I feel actually blessed, Sam, that um, I wasn't just put on this earth as lot number twenty hundred ninety-seven million trillion person. I. I do think um, this is this sounds daft, Sam. I think this. I, I was, I was put here for a purpose, and I think my my purpose is what's happened to me, and that I'm there as a as as now a sort of example. I, I think inspiration's a big word, and it, mums and dads use it, and sometimes the young people as well. But as an example, that it isn't the road to nowhere. It isn't the road to, you know, oblivion. And, and I'm not alone. I mean, I'm, I think lots of, 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 you know, single parents and um, people who've made their, their life in a new land, come from somewhere with no education, not knowing anyone, not even speaking the language. The, these stories are really important. Without them, I think there's going to be much more despair and much less sort of happiness and profit. However, mm -hmm. however, um, there has to be some honesty in there. That I, I, I'm not going to sit on this podcast and say I don't have those dark times anymore. Um, I that will never that that will never happen um it's too strong the 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 bad bit that i am working all the time to ignore is is will always be there and i can tell you 50 more than 50 years later i still fantasize 
about a version of myself that is um, whole and mm. you know and different. I suppose maybe I'm less ashamed of saying that now, mm. but yes, and I, I still I still daydream about being a uh, yeah be, being whole and playing cricket and riding a motorbike and driving a racing car and smiling at a pretty girl at the other end of a you know of the bar mm. Mm. whatever it is um so um but i wouldn't describe it as a demon that's the important thing i wouldn't describe it as a demon well i think that the things you say are so i think they resonate with so many different people and they cover the sort of subjects that you know whether people are whatever their issue is whether they've lived with a disability or or any other sort of challenge in their life i think the words that you said today are so sort of relevant to 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 everyone and and also you know you're obviously you're a role model and you're an inspiration but also you know the way in which you talk about empathy and the examples you've given of how other people's empathy have helped you in your life so powerful it's the most important thing my message off the back of what you said to everyone is we all need to work hard at the ability to feel empathy towards others and it does take some work and you've got to learn about it and understand it but it's yeah. an extremely powerful thing once you do robin i'm gonna i'm gonna send uh, i'm gonna put all the details to do with scope if people want to find out more about please that, do um in the link in the details underneath this podcast um please do i'm really grateful for your time today um, it's been a, a privilege to listen to you speak so openly. I, I, as you said, I know I'm aware that you haven't opened up like this about no, I haven't. You know, no, I haven't. Aspects said. of your life before, no, so I haven't. I'm really grateful you've chosen to do that today on the reset, and um, I'm just delighted to have heard your story. Thank you so much, Robin. I'm really pleased to have had the chance, and and most importantly, Sam, I did realise when when I took on the thing of scope, I've got to be honest. I have to be honest i can't play a part a charade because if i'm going to help other people with disabilities and people around them i've got to be honest i've got to tell it like it is well you've done a brilliant job of that today robin and i'm very grateful for it thanks well so am i very much thank you so am i and well done you as well by the way there you go sir robin miller truly an inspiration in so many ways I've included a link to Scope in the blurb that accompanies this podcast. Thanks for listening, gang. Remember to subscribe to the Reset newsletter at samdelaney.substack.com and follow me on Instagram at the Reset Sam. Until next time, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down.